following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. As the fourth and fifth graders are taking off, would you open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians? We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, looking at verses 3 through 6. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. You know, it's interesting to see uh, kind of what's been going on in um, culture lately. Last week, um, if you weren't here or didn't get the opportunity to hear what we were talking about, we were talking about Ephesians chapter 5. We looked at those first two verses, and you can look there. Um, just looking up from verse 3, it says, Therefore, it calls us, as Paul says, to be imitators of God. You and I are called as Christians to imitate God. We're not called to imitate man. And we talked a little bit about um, who we imitate, like that we imitate people. Um, we imitate celebrities and uh, sports figures. It, and then Satan, you can get out of my microphone. Um, and uh, we also... Um, Sometimes, uh, well, this can be good and bad. We imitate politicians. And I know you don't want to talk politics this morning, so I'm going to keep it real brief. Uh, But politicians, you know, have been known to be people who either imitate really well what it it means to walk uh, or or not so much. Um, We've had some politicians who uh, have been unfaithful to their spouses and mishandled funds and and done all those things. And, you know, we think in our society that it's just our, our society. You know, it's just our politicians. But if you were to go back in the church of Ephesus, you would see that the corruption was not just uh, with, with our society. It, it goes back into their society as well. Let me see if I can explain. There was an emperor in um, Ephesus that ruled. His name was Nero. Wicked, wicked man. He was a bisexual individual that was said to have relationships with his mother. Um, so somebody that you would not want to bring home, right? Okay. And um, as, uh, as you look at kind of Nero, he hated Christians. He was an individual who would actually um, slaughter Christians and put them on stakes and light them on fire so that people would have um, the ability to see at his parties. And so we look at our society and we think that it's rough in our society it was rough back then too. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And so how are we to live with all of this corruption that takes place? And Paul says that you are to be an imitator of God. You are to imitate him. How do I imitate God? If it keeps up, I'm going to switch over to a handheld, okay? Um, <clears throat> how am I to imitate God? What does it look like for me to imitate God? He says at the very end of that passage of scripture, he says in verse two, he says, you walk in love like Jesus Christ gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice. So we sacrifice our lives in discipline because Christ gave us his so that we would be rescued from sin. And what that means is I believe that I'm a sinner and we gather here on Sunday morning as Christians because we believe that all of, we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and Jesus in his blood gave us a sacrifice and he says, I will sacrifice my blood for your sins as a perfect offering so that you will not only have life now, but you will have life for eternity. And that is the fellowship that we have in the church. And we walk 
in wisdom when we become like Christ, laying down our lives as sacrifices to him. It says in the Bible, it's a sweet smell in the nostrils of God. And then Paul continues on it in verse 3 through 6 on how we can continue to be sweet sacrifices in the nostrils of God. And it's a very, very interesting passage. It's a very hard passage. So we should pray before we get started. God, man, this passage of scripture that we're about to study today is huge and so uh, relevant to our culture. Because so many of us struggle with this. And if we don't struggle with it in depth like our brother and sister, we struggle with it just a little bit. Every single one of us, if we were honest with ourselves, has the problem that is presented in the text. We have gone astray. We're not pure. And we have done you a disservice. And so... God, this morning, the prayer is, first of all, for me to be very delicate and graceful and that the congregations gathered and those who will listen to this later on would hear the attitude of love in the words that are expressed. But also, God, that there would be concern not only for them but for myself that all of us can fall into this trap. And Lord, the, the, the next prayer is that you, being the God of grace, who has lavished upon us in abundance your mercy and your grace, that we would receive this truth well with soft hearts. We confess, God, that we are sinners, and we understand that we need you. Soften our hearts to these truths. Let us not um, build up a wall between us and you. And then God, change us. Move us. And, and show us how we can be dependent upon you and, and how we can move from this crookedness into a life of sanctification to be set apart that our sins would not be what defines us, but you, our Savior, would and the striving after you. Help us, God, this morning with all my heart. I, I plead with you this morning that you would speak in ways that I can't with such a delicate passage this morning. We believe that you can do great things, and if you believe that too, say amen. All right, here we go. It's my hurt a little bit. I'm, I'm telling you, all right? He says, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, he says, but, the very first word, but, it, I preach out of the English Standard Version of the Bible, and there's another Bible called a New Living Translation, and the New Living Translation says, it replaces that word, but, with four words. It says, let there be no... So you and I as Christians, he says, let there be no what? He says, let there be no sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness. Somebody just got why the prayer was so serious. Must not even be named among you as it is proper among the saints. There is three sacrifices that we see here in the text to God that are a continuation of the sweet smell that we have in his nostrils. There's three more here, and this is the first one. He says, you as children of God are commanded to be sexually pure. You are commanded to be pure sexually, physically. You're commanded to honor the relationship that you have with your husband and, uh, and, and the relationship that you have with your wife. That is a covenant relationship like the covenant relationship that you have with God, and it sits parallel. And he says, you are to be sexually pure by not being immoral. And what does he mean there when he says immoral? Immoral, if you circle that word, is the word pornea. Sounds familiar because that's where we get our word pornography, 
right? And when he says you should pursue mortality, in other words, non-sexual immorality, he says that is any sexual sin against God and his love. So we would wonder, what is pornea? What is something that is immoral? Pornea or something immoral is any time that you distort God's love for us, his church. So we go back to the wedding, right? And we see that the wedding is symbolic of our relationship that we have with Jesus. We're his bride. And anytime you break that and you distort what that looks like, you are essentially in sexual immorality. So we have images in our culture, in our time period. Can you give me a handheld? Yeah, awesome. All right. Check. All right, kid. I can do this. All right. So watch this. He says, we'll start back. We'll rewind just a little bit. Remember VCR days? All right. Let there be no sexual immorality, all impurity, or covetousness. Word immorality means pornea, any sexual sin against God and his love. Talking about the wedding illustration. The fact that we look at the wedding as we are the bride of Christ coming to him. So anytime we distort that, anytime we go away from that, whether it be visually in our culture, whether it be with our ears, whether it be with our hands, what we participate in, because remember, What Jesus clearly said is anybody who lusts also commits adultery in his heart. So he says it goes beyond all of the things that we know. It goes head, hands, heart. All of a person should be sexually pure. Not pursue the things that are pornea, that distort God's love and who he is in the way that he loves us. So you and I are commanded to be self-controlled individuals. We discipline ourselves, we discipline ourselves what we watch, what we listen to, and how we look at other people so that we can honor God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. Make sense? Now, everybody's uncomfortable because we're starting to talk about this because everybody struggles with it. It's not just a male struggle, it's a female struggle too. And we look at this and we realize that all of us have distorted God's love in some way. And we don't want to get into the gruesome details of this because satan would be glorified with that when we bring up specifics what happens is satan goes yeah just keep going down that trail because in your mind starts to wander you should flee sexual immorality first thing second thing he says all impurity anything that is unclean or filthy so it goes beyond just like the sexual things into the dirty things that we allow ourselves to consume the TV show that has just a little bit of filthiness in it, like that's okay, right? Just the, the little bit of filthiness that happens at work in the conversations. Just the little lust that I had for that lady who walked into the gym. See what I'm getting at? Like every single one of us could identify one of those things where we're like, man, I'm off on that area. Now, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, he says to the scribes and the Pharisee, the church-going people, he looks at them, he says, you're like a whitewashed tomb. Because they're done up and they're good and they come to the, sanct- the, the, to the tabernacle and, and they got the finest clothes on and they, got, and they look good. And he says, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You look polished on the outside, but what's going on internally? There's dead, decaying bodies behind the wall. When Paul says, 
you as a believer are to flee from impurity. He says you should have nothing to do with dead, decaying things. The old self, what I pursued, my own righteousness, my own gratification, my own desire. He says you need to put that stuff to death. That is what is old. You've been saved from. Now you pursue righteousness, what you are saved to. Make sense? So he says, you flee sexual immorality, pornea. You flee pure, uh, impurity, things that are dead. And covetousness, which is greed, which is a culmination of those two things. That is self-gratification and self-centeredness. Those must not be even named among the people of God. Those things must not be named even among you. When people see you out, they should not know you for being even slightly dirty. They should know you as loving your husband. They should know you as loving your wife. That that should be the primary care and concern is that you are physically pure. In other words, that you don't deviate off the path at all. That you look and they say, that guy right there, that girl right there is pure. Their motives are pure. He says, There is no justification and no toleration for sexual sins in the body of Christ. These are the things in which we stomp out and get rid of quickly. This is your primary care and concern. Why? Because it distorts God's love and his image of his love towards us. It says in the the, uh, New Living Translation, it says, Such sins have no place among God's people. My question is, okay, because I was reading this, And I was like, okay, I I got it. We can flee from it. Like, we're all guilty of this. But then, verse 5 kind of rocked me a little bit. Because it says, you can be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, or greedy after their own selfishness, has no inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and God. That makes you kind of, like, lose your breath a little bit, right? Because you look at it and go... Uh, guilty, and, and, and because I'm guilty, what does that mean? I, I, I don't get to go to heaven? Like, that makes me nervous. Does it make you nervous? Okay? If it makes you nervous, how do you think I feel standing on stage preaching to you this morning about this stuff, all right? What it boils down to is, what defines you as a Christian? Okay? What defines you as a Christian? If the call here is to be sexually pure, What defines you? In other words, when you fall, when you stumble, when you sin, is there conviction that takes place in here? Is there something inside that goes, man, what what just happened, what just took place, I got to get rid of that. If there is no conviction on behalf of the saints when a sin has been committed, it should call us to really... Uh, re-look at and, and evaluate if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If there is no conviction when you sin, and after it's all over, and you're just okay with it, and you just move on from it, it should cause you to reevaluate: do I really, honestly, have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Paul is so firm here that he says there should be conviction from the Holy Spirit that you are moving into a relationship of sanctification. In other words, that that's not defining you, but that God is at work in your life. You may struggle with a certain sin for the rest of your life, but the lean and dependency upon God is what matters in the fight. 
He says, you have to lean on me and trust me in my understanding and not your own. He says, listen, he says, a life of habitual sin can be uh, something that is, is not a part of God's kingdom unless we look at it and we say the Holy Spirit needs to do a great work in us. There's an old Indian proverb or parable that was told. Little kids sitting um, with all the elders of the Indian tribe. And uh, they're talking, you know, about some stuff. And uh, they talk about two wolves being inside the individual. And he says, hey, there's, a, there's, there's, two, there's two wolves inside of a, of a human being. And uh, the little kid hears him talking about it. And he says, he says, Dad, you talk about two wolves. If there's a fight that's going on, which wolf wins? And the dad looks across the fire to his son and he says, whichever wolf that you feed the most. Now, our souls have been saved. God has come in and he has sanctified us. He set us apart from the rest of the world. He's looked at me and he's looked at you and he said, I offer you the gift of salvation. But this flesh hangs off us. That's what Paul says. The flesh entangles us. It, it trips us up. It, it, it's something that we fight. James says, in this world you will have trouble. You'll have trials. You'll have turmoil. You'll have things that happen in your life where you'll find yourself in tension. You'll fight. But the question is, what do you feed in your life? In regards to sexual purity, because many of us have struggled with this sin. And we just wonder, why does it stay prevalent? My question is, is there radical amputation that is taking place in your life to eliminate that sin? Is there steps in your walk with God to remove that from your life? I'm like, let me give you some examples. For those of you who have problems with your computer screen, your computer screen shouldn't be downstairs in a room where it's off the beaten path. Why is it not in your living room where everybody can see what you're doing? Your phone. I'm just talking about my phone. Are you serious? Get off my phone, right? Your phone. If that device causes you to sin, then maybe it's time to dump the smartphone and go back to the flip phone. See, there's often times that God looks at us and he says, I have the answers to your problems, but you don't want to participate in the practices in which I'm laying in front of your path. See that? So there's a lot of times where we're like, God, help me, save me, rescue me. And he's like, Move, right? If there is somebody in your life who's causing you to sin, you put up barriers around yourself. Well, Jordan, you just don't understand. Like, like she's always there and, and, and she's always in front of me and, and, and it, she works with me. Well, let me tell you what. You don't go to the, the place where she's at in the break room. You don't take your breaks then at the same time anymore. See what I'm saying? You set up a guard. You discipline yourself so that you will not fall into these traps. So oftentimes, God places the things that we need the most, but we have to participate in them. It's guys and girls. It's, it's all of us. We all struggle with this in some sort of capacity. Oh, but I need this for my, for my work, or I have to have this thing for whatever. No, that's not, that's not true. There are so many people who I talk to who are locked into habitual sin, and we give them solutions to the problem to get out of that sin, but they're not willing to practice it. And that is what the Bible says, knowing the right thing to do and refusing to do it, which is the sin that God looks at and he's just so grieved by, to quote Ephesians, right? He says, you remove yourself from these 
things. You train yourself into a life of godliness. There should be no sexual impurity amongst the saints. Now watch this, number two, verse four. He says, not only is it physical, okay? It's also, he talks about your mouth. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of this place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Linking into six, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So he says you have sexual purity, but you also have verbal purity. <laughs> now, if you weren't in the sexual purity camp, we just brought you into our circle, okay? Because everybody struggles here, and I'll show you how. When he says filthiness, it's his degrading talk. Things that are disgraceful. Whether it be in your head or you said it out loud, Right? Well, I just, I just speak the truth. Okay, yeah, but you still tore that person down, okay? It's, di- it's disgraceful, and it's also disrespectful. That person that you saw that cut you off, what'd you say about them? It's disgraceful, right? Even though you're in your car, Jesus is sitting in the passenger side, and maybe you need to let him take the wheel next time, okay? Not physically, literally. You just see some of you pulling over and being like, I told him to, but we're not going anywhere. Anyway, <clears throat> He says, this is degrading talk. All of us have been in this spot. I've been in this spot where you degrade somebody with what you said. He says, not only that, there should be no foolish talk, silly talk. The word there is moron, which is moron, where we get the word moron. He says, this is moronic talk, foolish talk. Things that come out of your mouth that are foolish, like children would say. We were sitting on the, uh, our bed the other day, and um, my oldest daughter went to her room. And uh, my youngest daughter's sitting on the bed, and I'm sitting next to her, and, and Bethany's there. And Bethany looks at her, and she says, hey, show Dad what you learned. And I'm like, oh, this should be good. Here we go. And uh, she says, she's like, Dad, I learned how to, to make flagellant noises, because we're in church, you've got to use big words, um, with my mouth. And uh, I'm like, oh, okay. And uh, sure enough, you know, like, and she's laughing. She thinks it's funny. And I'm sitting there going, oh, and, and, and Bethany's like, yeah, your dad can make those noises with his armpits. And I'm like, and she's like, really? Show me. And I'm like, oh, man, okay, here we go. So, so I do it. And I looked at Bethany and I said, I feel stupid. <laughs> and, and that's what happens, isn't it? It's the same way in our life. Like when we go back to foolish and silly talk, it should feel stupid. You should feel dumb. You should feel like a moron. Like, why am I saying these things which, which I've been saved from? Why am I thinking about this person that I've been saved from? Again, what defines you? Because if there's no conviction in your heart, then maybe there's no Savior that has done a great work in you. But if there's conviction in my heart, I look at it and I go, Jesus, man, that's on me. And and help me. Help me. I I need you to come in and do a great work here. I'm by myself, left to my own devices, I will explode. But with you, I can do all things. He says there should be no degrading talk, something of disrespect. There should be no silly talk, like, like children talk. Now, here's the hard one. He says there should be no crude joking. You know what he talks about when he says crude joking? He says that is essentially when you take something that is meant to be pure and you make it dirty. And our society does this all the time. You know what I'm talking about. When somebody is in a group of people and something is said that is so pure that that one guy, sometimes you, sometimes me, makes it dirty. So that the guys 
in that circle would laugh. And what we do is we promote self-gratification by sacrificing our salvation. And that's where God looks at it and he says, there should be none of this among you. Your mouth should be clean. Out, they have no place. Those are expressions of selfishness. They're focused on you when you should be focused on God and serving him. And I go back to six and it scares me to death because it says, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So what it's saying there is, if I'm sexually impure and if I'm verbally impure, I'm not only um, looking at my internal inheritance and rolling the dice with it, because I know that I get into heaven, like, like that's good. But, but also what I'm doing is I'm welcoming God's wrath in my life. Now, I've been saved by grace, and I'm in the family of God. But I can't just stand there. I have to walk, as we've said, countless number of weeks. And that means that I hear the convictions and do something about the convictions that have taken place. To just stand there and say, God convicted me, and you know what? There it is again. That's ignorance on our behalf. And Paul looks at us and he says, these should have no place. There should be no tolerance with anything that is happening sexually, wise, verbally, or physically. Why? Because it distorts God's view from somebody else's perspective. Every time I participate in those things, I'm distorting somebody's view of God who is lost and bringing somebody down who has already been saved. Does that make sense? That's not our goal as a church. That's not our goal as Christians. It is to evangelize those who are lost, and it is to edify those who have already been saved. So how do I overcome this? Okay, Jordan, you talked a little bit about the fact that there's going to be conviction that takes place, and I'm convicted right now standing up here, and you're convicted right now sitting where you're sitting. What do I do in order to overcome these things? Because there's some people here who's like, I've been struggling with sexual addiction for like 17, 18 years. And there's some people here who's like, I've been swearing since I was in seventh grade. I'm with you. I learned how to flip people off when I was in fifth grade by putting my finger underneath the pillow. So I'm there in that camp. I didn't grow up and have this modeled well. And here's, in your schools, you have all these things. So what is the solution to the problem? Because we're all in this camp. He says, watch this, you missed it. In verse 4, he says, your attitude should be that of thanksgiving. And in verse 6, it should be of obedience. And that's where we fall short as a church. That's where I fall short as a Christian. Because when sin creeps in, and I submit to that, I have not given thanks to God who has saved me from it. So my attitude, when sin creeps in, and the flesh wins a battle, I give thanks to God that he wins the war and that he's with me in the next one. And I change my perspective. Your attitude should be an attitude of thanksgiving that God has not left you, but he is right there with you. He is for you. He is in the struggle that you are in. How many times have we approached our shortcomings and our sins and gotten on our knees and said, God, here is my problem. Here is my issue. And I thank you that you have not left me in the spot but that you have redeemed me out of that sin so that I can be more like your son because in this world you will have troubles, but I need to take heart because you have overcome the world. 
Like we thank God, Paul thanked God that the thorn in his side was there because it led him more to obedience in Christ. So that sin that you have in your life, that struggle that you have in your life, God has put that there on purpose so that you would passionately pursue him. But we look at it and we go, man, if it would just go away. But when that thing creeps up, we thank God and we say, here it is again. All right, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. All right, here it comes. God, I thank you that you're with me and you're for me. And, and, and here's what's going to happen. And here's what's going to take place. And you're with me in the fight. You said you never leave me. You've never forsaken me. How many times when your sin creeps into your life, do you find yourself in your knee, on your knees in prayer asking God to, to help you in that fight? No, we don't do that. He says you have an attitude of thanksgiving, but also you would become obedient. And the more you are obedient, the easier it is to fight the sin that entangles you. Did you know that? As a matter of fact, sometimes it just feels good. Like when I do the right thing, it just feels good. Like there's sometimes where I've walked away from a situation, and I'm like, wow, those guys are being kind of dirty, and I left. All right. And God says, don't be prideful. And I, okay, well. <laughs> you know? How many times do we do that? Do we, do we, uh, the more you're obedient, the easier it is. The more times I can get my kids to put their laundry in the laundry basket, the easier it becomes for them. The more times that I welcome them and have them do chores, the easier it is for them to do chores, right? We are to approach God like little children, to come to him in faith and believe that it's possible to do these things. That's what he calls us to do. Once you are obedient in the small things, the bigger things go away. So our attitude is to be that of thanksgiving, and also to be obedient. <clears throat> when Bethany and I first got married, um, we lived in this, uh, this apartment at first, and then we moved into a farmhouse. And we went over to the people who owned the farmhouse. And uh, we said, hey, we'd like to get a dog. And they said, if you get a small dog, that's fine. No big deal. And we said, okay. And I've wanted a bulldog since I was in eighth grade, so I convinced Bethany that a bulldog is the best dog in the world, and she agreed. We didn't want a short little bulldog because we know they have health problems. And we didn't want a big bulldog because we weren't supposed to have a big dog. And so American bulldogs are like 200 pounds and English bulldogs are like 50. So we found these things called Old English Bulldogs. And they're cool, man. They're like stout and just big. So we were looking online and I looked at Bethany and I said, hey, I found a dog that I really want. And I said, what do you think about this one? And she said, yeah, that, that looks good. Let's, let's do it. So we said, okay. We loaded up our car, and we traveled all the way to Kansas City, Missouri. And uh, we get to this, this, most dog breeders live in the country, right? They can't live in town. They live in the country. And uh, so we're weaving all around Kansas City, and we come up upon this farm, and it was cold. And uh, we didn't bring a leash. And we see all the big dogs that are sitting on the side of the fence. And I, I look at Betty, and I said, those things are huge. We can't take that home. I said, I didn't bring a leash. And she says, I know, we're in trouble. We're already, we're already here. We can't back out. And I said, okay. So the lady who ran the place came up to us, and she said, um, she said, uh, let me show you your dog. And I said, I, we can't take those dogs home. Those, they're too big. She says, no, no, that's mom and dad. And I said, man, we're going to have to apologize to the landlords because they're going to be a big dog. <laughs> and uh, she, she went over to this little kind of pig pen, and she opens up the, the gate. 
And all these dogs, these little tiny babies come running out, these little puppies. And I'm like, oh, I want all of them. I'll take every dog, every dog you have. And they just come running out, you know, and they all come up and lick you. And, and now when somebody has a puppy, all I see is responsibility. But back then, I was like, no, 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 let's take them all. And uh, so we went into this little place, and we learned to flip dogs over, you know, to find out their temperament. If they don't struggle, um, it, they have a tendency to be a better dog than, than somebody else. And so I found this little white dog, and I flipped him over, and I, I want this one. And Betsy said, okay, let's get that one. So we took him home, and we drove all the way back home. He slept all the way in the car. Uh, and it was funny, he started getting bigger. I mean, this dog's getting like, he gained probably 20 pounds a week. Like, so all of a sudden, he's 90 pounds, this big, white, 90-pound dog. We lived on this farmhouse, and what we would do is we would put him on a, we did, for the longest time, we didn't put him on a, a, a leash because why do you put a dog on a leash in a farmhouse? I mean, they're allowed to run. But then we'd find out people are coming over, and we'd put him on a leash. And uh, people would come up, and they would drive up to our farmhouse. And it was funny to watch their faces. Big dog. We named him Tozer after A.W. Tozer because we're spiritual like that. And, uh, and they would see him, and they wouldn't get out of their car. We're like, what is wrong with these people, you know? I mean, he was, he was a, a baby. Like, I mean, he had the softest heart. And we're like, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't bite, you know, no big deal. And, and they're like, sure, he doesn't bite. So they'd walk around him, you know? And, uh, and, and some people get out of their cars, and they'd be really, really hesitant of him. When he was a puppy, every time he did something wrong, we would discipline him to not do that. And slowly, as he grew up from being a little puppy, he learned obedience. And this dog that had the presence of being massive and powerful and could literally had all the abilities to do everything wicked and vile was soft and gentle. I remember when Bethany found out she had cancer, the dog was next to her and he laid his head on her lap. She cried on him. And then Bethany's dad got in a motorcycle accident. And here comes the dog. This big giant. How could something that big and that strong and that scary be so tame? And we disciplined him well. We as Christians, as humans, have the ability to do wicked, vile things. We have the capacity to do things that are awful and mean. That hurt not only others, but hurt ourselves. But we've been saved from that. And so we discipline and train ourselves to not let the flesh win. We discipline and train ourselves so that we're pure in the sight of God. So that those who are lost will come to a relationship in Jesus Christ. And those who are found will be encouraged to know that the fight is worth it. Paulus in 1 Corinthians at the very end. He says, all these people who essentially have been with him in the fight, and he looks at others and he says, you should model them. They're, they're, they're doing a great job. That's edifying to the church. You should be pure with your mouth so that people far from God would come to a relationship with him. You should discipline yourself so that when I wake up in the morning, my attitude is that of thanksgiving. And that I am obedient to reading God's word and implementing properly in my everyday life. That I'm asking him that he would help save me from immorality and impurity and, co and covetousness. That he would eliminate the things that I did as a child that were filthy and foolish and crude. 
that he would rescue and redeem me. He would give me a soft heart. That's how you overcome. You're disciplined. From the time you get up to the time you go to sleep, you're disciplined. You live a disciplined life. You live in such a way that you are leaning, as Proverbs says, on the Lord and not yourself. Do you live in such a way that you access him whenever you can? And that you would have him come rescue you and redeem you in all of your problems and shortcomings. What defines you as a person? Is it that you always constantly fall and there's no conviction in your life? Or is that when you fall, you have a redeemer to lean on? And that you look to who loves you and cares for you and says, we'll figure it out. We'll move on. I'm here for you. Paul says, you approach the throne of God with thanksgiving and obedience and you'll go far. You train yourself in discipline and you'll go far. That will be a sweet smell in the nostrils of God. Let me pray for you. God, this is not easy stuff. It's hard. It's difficult for us. We look at these passages of Scripture, specifically Ephesians chapter 5, 3 and, and 5, and we all fall short of those things. We all stumble and fall. We're, we're sinners. But let our sin not define us. Let our salvation define us and what we've saved from. God, in a few short moments, we're going to take communion and You tell us before we take communion to examine ourselves. Examine ourselves in two ways. And as you're sitting here in the quietness of the pew. In the congregation that is gathered here today. The first thing that you need to examine is. Do I really ultimately have a relationship with the most high God through his son Jesus? If you don't, you're you're not allowed to participate in the Lord's Supper. Because this is a symbolic representation of our walk with God that Christ's body was broken for us and that his blood was shed for us it was shed for you and God says I want a relationship with you if you confess that you're a sinner and believe that my blood covers that sin all sin past present and future if you put your faith and trust in me and not in your works you'll be saved The Bible tells us Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world. He came into the world to save it, a sinner like me and like you. And the first thing that you examine here in the quietness of this pew is, do I really have a relationship with Jesus? Is he where I put my faith and trust? And if it's not, you pray to him for maybe the first time. And say, God, I acknowledge and admit that I'm a sinner and that I need a savior. Come and save me. And he will. And for those of us who already have a relationship with Jesus, you are called to examine yourself. Before you participate in taking the bread and the cup, you are commanded by Scripture to examine yourself so that you would be clean before the eyes of the Lord. The Bible says that anyone who does not examine himself before coming to participate in communion welcomes the wrath of God upon them. And so, God, we, first of all, say that you are the great God and that we love your son, Jesus, the sacrifice for our sins. And, God, we ask that you would find us, 
with a forgiving spirit. We, not only individually, me, myself, but also corporately as a church, know we have done you a disservice. And we have lived a life that we shouldn't live. And that we have participated in the things that have been presented here today, but we've also done other things. And while we are your children, some of us have grieved the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, personally, I ask for your forgiveness. And corporately, we ask for your forgiveness. And we know that that forgiveness comes when we are genuine. God, our big prayer is that you will find us when temptation comes. When hardship comes. When the things that entail us come. That you would find us with, first of all, an attitude of thankfulness. And secondly, that you would give us the ability to be obedient to you and your son. We ask very openly and honestly today that you would help us to be obedient to your word. That we wouldn't just be hearers of this. We would be doers of, as well. That those of us in the workforce would be a light to people who are living in darkness. That those of us who are stay at, staying at home with our kids, that we would, we would discipline them accordingly to what Scripture says so that they would grow up in godliness and understanding a relationship with you. Those of us with so many problems and, and things that are going on that are outside of our control, would you help us to know that you're in control of all things? And we yield to you, God, this morning. We examine our hearts as we come before your table. And as we participate, God, this morning in the Lord's Supper, as the bread and the cup comes around, may it be a reminder for us of what we've been saved from. And may it be a reminder for us to discipline ourselves so that our actions, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds would be a sweet smell in the nostrils of you. Oh, we love you, Jesus. And I love you, that you saved me. And that you continue to do a great work in me. Regardless of my own shortcomings. God, speak to us today as we take communion together. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church Podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab. 